I was making a rake on the land with four or five more and um, it seems we heard this terrible noise over the hills away from us and one of the men remarked, he said we'd have to hurry on, there's thunder city and we'd have a flood of rain. It, it held for about, I suppose, about an hour and a half or two hours that way. And um, of course, uh, they, they were outnumbered by the British, of course. But there was a false... Uh, there was a false message sent to the barrack here that the barrack in Milton was attacked. That was a trap to draw them out, you see. They wanted them to come out. And um, they were above and... Of course, in Renean, the, 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 the mountains are very high there, you know, the cliffs. And they fought off at the top of the hills there and ambushed them there. But... Uh, yes, the Westclare train was due at the time and uh, the train pulled in and she was held up by the Republican crowd in the line and she was there for a long time and the driver and the guard and firemen were taken out at good point and they were held up and they had to leave the train on the, on the line. So, uh, it seems they took cover then from behind the train I suppose while the fight was on. And then there was a message sent here to the barrack to say that the barrack in Milton was attacked. That was in order to draw them out. But they came on then, and uh, two or three or four lorries, and the fight started. But then it went on, you see, uh, to a finish, you know. Mike had a while, he saw the danger, there was a big gap there, and they had to cross that gap. And while they'd be crossing it, they'd be cut to pieces with, with machine gun fire. And uh, the military had arrived this time, the reinforcements, and they were coming up in the field to take up positions to fire them. And Mike had a wire, crept out to the cocky here that was there, and he had a full view of any of the soldiers or towns that had come up in the field, up at the public road. And he shouted back to Ignatius, give me the rifle, he says, and I'll silence the gunner. So Ignatius was very slow, and he says, wait till the boys cross the gap. No, it is too late, they'll be cut to pieces. He says, Tis now is the t time, I want, to, I want the rifle. And I'll silence him damn quick. So with that, he threw him the rifle, and there was supposed to be two or three rounds in it, not enough. So he threw him the belt of the bandolier of ammunition, and he loaded the rifle. And the gunner was just about to open fire, 
when he fired and knocked him out, got him through the head. So the officer came up then, and the story goes that he fired at him, and he got him here in the chest, knocked him out. But he kept firing, and he waved his hand back, and he says, go on now, lads, he says, Cross, you're okay. There was a, there was a, sec- a few seconds then of a relapse. The firing stopped for a few seconds, and more soldiers came up, and they were taken in certain movements to surround him. But they were gone too far, you see, to get hold of their grip. And uh, he, Mikey, otherwise shouted, keep going now, lads, he says, well, you're, well, the, well, the shooting had stopped. So he kept, they kept moving until they lasted him past this gap, out of the line of fire. So he uh, went back with him then and followed him, and he was firing as he was retreating. And he saw that he'd be coming close on him, he'd fire and knock him out. Irish Times, September the 23rd, 1920. County Clare ambush. Military and police attacked. Four police and three soldiers killed. It is officially stated that a police motor car was ambushed between Milton Mulbay and Lahinch, County Clare. Our Ennis correspondent telegraphs, A report has just reached Ennis of a collision between a party of police and soldiers and civilians yesterday afternoon at Renin, midway between Lahinch and Milton Mulbay. The military and police were in motor lorries at the time, they were attacked at a place known as Drummond Hill by a party estimated at between 100 and 150 men. Six policemen were on the lorry, four were fatally wounded and one seriously wounded through the lung. Two military lorries later came on the scene. The attackers fired on the military who returned the fire. It is stated that three soldiers were killed. The soldiers pursued the attackers who retreated across the hills. Further details are lacking as it is impossible to get near the place. I had a very wild ass in car on a wild ass and he was under the car and the dipper wouldn't stop him and it seems I was coming home with that in car and um, I was coming in by uh, the settler road and I had to pass the barracks and the tans were above and they were like demons they were looking for blood they were mad to kill and murder all around them so uh, I stood in dangerous grounds, I realised it then, and I couldn't stop that, he was flying. He went like a flying bomb past the barracks, and I tried to make him hit Paddy O'Neill to be able to stop him, and I couldn't stop him, and I was sawing the reins like this, and I had him nearly short, and he was flying, man, galloping. So, God, I said, so they put up their hands like this, no hope of stopping him. And at last, anyway, he stopped below on the nose for it, and four of them came down, and they, they made me go back with him, and I was brought back to the barracks. And he says, take him out from under the gun carriage, he says, Paddy. So they were ripping the chains, and they were throwing the chains around his ears. They never untackled a donkey before. So with that anyway, uh, I had to take that from under the car. So the next thing anyway, I took off the winkers, and uh, 
the bridge and, and all the tackling that was in his back and I threw it into the car. So they got up in his back, five or six of them, and they had a motor again, and they were playing God Save the King above his back. So it seems he reared up on his hind legs and he wouldn't go for them. And uh, John Daly, the, the solicitor, came out and said, you might as well be idle, boys. The diplomat will put one leg out before another. Well, he says, we'll put the buster gun in quick time, too. We'll shove a bullet up in his, in his aborium. <laughs> Damn good. Don't you know very well that that fellow is Sinn Féin or he won't go. And anywhere, he says, you'd have to stop playing that God Save the King. Let you rattle up the soldier's song and he'll go. Well, it seems to be done going to be a sure deep for him. I'm telling you, we'll put the bloody bullet up in his bloody sunset. Nine coffins passed me on the road, outside, just beyond at the P&T station here, that the railway station was going that time. But I was coming along the road, uh, well, uh, the, the, the same as any coffin now, like, you know, the same, and more of them were kind of a beer, uh, all one shape. The shoulders not cut in here near the head or anything. But the Union Jack was around uh, every coffin that was in. There was nine in a minute, and they pulled up, and there was a... Uh, there was a guy, there was up to 12 or 14 of them sitting back to back with the rifles trained out on both sides of the road. And about three, four hundred soldiers marched in from the barracks and they arrived in a stymen. And uh, there were some women filling buckets of water at the foot of Churchill. And the officer shouted up to him, he said, send out the men to the men we want, not the women. And uh, so, of course, he says, get away now as quick as you can. So he didn't tell them what they were going to do, but they went clear the way. They went into cannons, and they took down all the bottles of whiskey and everything they could lay hands on, and they drank it, the whole lot. And whatever bottles that were there, they brought, brought them out and smashed them in the streets. And they pulled out the piano, seven or eight of them, and they were dancing around it. And they had a, a sparrow above on top of a stick. And they were singing that, all oh, the birds in the air. Did you ever hear that? With a sigh and a sobbing, when they heard of the death of poor Cock Robin. And then they all joined in together. We buried him lower down on the banks of the Yayoa and all that. And one fellow had sing, Who saw him die? Twas I, says the fly, with my little eye. Twas I saw him die. Now who ring the bell? Did I take the bell on the place that can pull? With my goodness, pull! I'll ring the bell! All the birds of the air were sighing and sobbing when they heard of the death of poor Cock Robin. When they heard of the death of They were singing away and they were dancing around the piano. Of course, they were all drunk. They were mad drunk. More than were lying in the streets. And uh, they had all the whiskey and children in the shop drink. Uh, they sang then, Where are the lads of the village tonight? Where are the boys we know? They're not in Piccadilly or Eslaw Square. No, not there, I didn't say where. They're taking a trip over the continent with their rifles and their bayonets too. 
Facing danger gladly, where they're wanting badly, that's where they are to die. Where are the lads of the village tonight? Where are the boys we know? They're not in Piccadilly or any Sloan Square. No, not there. They don't know where. They're taking a trip to the continent. Oh, with their rifles and their bayonets too. Facing danger gladly, where they're wanted badly, oh, that's where they are tonight. They sang that when the piano was in flames. They had uh, a lot of your petrol and uh, to throw in the houses. So some of the RIC were there and uh, they knew the people, because better than the British soldiers. And they were telling them the names of the places to set fire to. And they went, uh, they went, uh, started above us, Clares, Mikey Clares. And uh, they burned that to the ground. They were very near to burning lights, in mistake, but the RAC, one of them, a man named Carter, he taught them not to burn that. And uh, that they were not belonged to the Republican movement or anything like that. So, they passed that place and they went up to Divots and they threw two cans of petrol up on the shutters and th- the door and threw the match. And uh, it, it said, it was said that the soldiers were very drunk and that their tunic and their hat or uh, helmet was found in the ruins the following morning. They must have been falling into the fire, but anywhere their clothes were found, burnt to a cinder there. And um, after that then, the, this fellow, he was bringing a bucket of water up from the river, from the, up through the archway now. And uh, he had a bucket of water in his hand, and he arrived above in the street to throw it in David's house to try to quench it. And the soldiers ran down, and they surrounded him. And his, one of them says, what the hell are you doing here, he says. So uh, he said, account for yourself. So he said, he got frightened, and he got shocked. And I couldn't say what answer he gave him, but they dragged him down. But they cut him by the legs and dragged him along the street down to the square. And they hit him into the head with the butt of the rifle. And they put him in a dying condition. And they dragged him up Parliament Street and put him again. The shutters there at Paddy O'Neill's, the Cardinal House next to the courthouse. And one fellow held him again. He was in a dying condition. And one fellow went out on the road, one of the tans, and he fired and shot him. So they dragged him out on the road and uh, left him there and he died on the, on, the, on the street in a pool of blood. So there was a man named uh, My, Michael White, he was a British soldier. Well, he fought in the, in the war and he was, he was inside at, at a pub, Tommy Canole was the name of the place. And someone said inside, poor Peter Alain has also been killed by the black and tans. My God, he says, I went to school with him, poor, poor, poor PJ, he says. So, God, I must go out, I must go out to see if what, see a diver did. So he came out, he came out the front door and he passed down, and the sword, it was full of military, the streets and tents, they were going up and down, they were firing shots. And he said, uh, they surrounded him and they asked him to count for his movements, and he said, well, he said, you have shot my best friend, PJ the land, he said, I went to school with I'm just awful sad, he says. I feel very sad over it. So the soldier says, well, he says, um, you'll get the same fate now, he says. Well, 
When I'm caught a hold to money, he says, let go of me, he says. I, where were ye, he says, in 1918, 1418, I fought in the first war, he says. Well, you'll have to prove that. So he pulled up his sleeve and he showed him the tattoo on his arm. And uh, they cooled down then when they saw that. And uh, they went away. Two of them followed him to know what he wanted to do. So he went up and he saw poor Peter lying on the streets in a pool of blood. He took him up in his arms and carried him in the lane by the courthouse now and down along and he burst in some door there and brought him into an old cowhouse that was there and he got a few lemonade cases and he laid him out there. After that then, they went up, the officer and the military went up and they, they set fire to the town hall and the, the heat from the hall was so bad that they had to creep up by the monastery wall, go on their knees up along, stoop down, the heat was terrible. and but. The, the monks were above and they were saying the rosary in the garden overlooking the, the the lane there. So they went up then and the came as far as Tom Kinnall. He lived above uh, on the road to the station there. Um, Mr Buckley, the chemist, lived there at one time and uh, afterwards. But Tom Kinnall and his wife and child were about going to go to bed and Tom was saying the rosary. When the officer knocked at the door and he said, uh, is there a man named Tom Kinnall here? So the, the wife uh, opened the door and she said, yes, my husband you mean. Yes, we want that man out here, he says. So it seems they took him out. They shot him on the road and they dragged him down, down further down the road. There's a cross there in memory of him. The reason they picked him out to burn him and kill him, or shoot him, in the, where the ambush was held in the field. The officer went up and he searched the field and he got his overcoat and there was a letter in their pocket and that was, was the cause of his death. They found the letter in his pocket addressed to Tom Kinnall, insurance agent in uh, Parliament Street in his diamond. Uh, he was a clerk at the office. The £1.9 was given out at the time and uh, he was a clerk there. And this man got along in his court, and uh, one of the fellows that was uh, in the ambush. And I suppose he took off the court and threw it in the field after him. And the officer came up in the field, and um, when the fellows retreated, he picked this court and he searched it and got this letter addressed to Tom Kinnall. Three of the soldiers sent the, the wife up the pound road, and she had this child in her arms, and they kept her, they kept her co covered with the rifles above at uh, Stack's Gate on the Pound Road. And uh, they took the husband down, they dragged him down as far as where the cross is now. And um, they shot him there. And he was dying at the time, in a dying condition. And one of the officers said, take him up now, he says, the house was in flames at the time. Take him up now, drag him up and throw him into the flames, he says. One of the soldiers, it said, it was said, refused to carry him. He'd been a Catholic. He said, no, sir, he says, until the man is dead. And when he's dead, he says, I'll comply with your order. So with that, he says, you're, I'll court martial you, he says, for this, for not obeying my order. So <coughs> at any rate, the other three and the officer dragged him up. And the heat was so bad that the officer caught him in his arms and he only went halfway and flung him in through the doorway into the flames. And the house was burning mad. 
And the following morning, I was coming over making the car, and I saw the smoke coming from the windows, no roof, the house was roofless. And there was two lads there, and they were taking him out, taking him out, and he was underneath the mortar and the slates and timber. I suppose a couple of feet down, the whole thing collapsed in on top of him, and there was nothing in the mortal remains, only bones. Not if all the flesh was burned away. But a strange thing about the whole affair, he was sent the rosary that night before the officer called. And uh, he was kneeling down, sent the rosary before he got a bit. And sometime then afterwards, the officer called. And when they had the house burned, the following morning, there was the, the, the statue of Old Lady was still there intact. No burning, no smoke, only there was a kind of a a kind of a slight button up along at the back of the statue, which was never touched. So I just proved to you, I suppose, the power of God. There was a fellow named Wheatley, an Armstrong, and, uh, and Haynes, he was a driver. And, um, oh, he was like a thing that had come from the grave. He was all bones. You'd hardly see any flesh in him. And he had two eyes, like, button towards in a blanket. But it, he was an awful-looking rich. And um, there was a fellow here named Socks. And if you said, he'd pull up the trousers, and he had a pair of women's socks up to his backside. And he'd, he'd, he'd drill three holes in your hat. He had a terribly shot. And Socks, they was call him. So this old lady, uh, he was a, he was, he was a, that's, I don't know, but he was a funny kind of a bloke. You wouldn't normally make him. But this, this, this old lady was standing in the door and we said, how are you getting on, Mr. Stockens, is she? Socks, they called him. Well, he said, do you know what it is? He said, I blow your cluck off. He said, if you say another word to me, you bloody imbecile, what the hell do you think you who I am? So he went across the road and there was this draper. He had a big shop there. His son was running now. And he had a dead sitting him. And he was walk up and put his backside again the Protestant gate. I hope this isn't uh, a Roman Catholic church uh, in the cookie house. And he looked around and he stuck his backside up again the gate. He had a revolver in the hall, and it loaded, of course. And he had a dead sitting this fellow. I'll send a quick and sure, mustn't you have to, you melody? He said, he didn't clear the bloody ship. He said, I want all the good dead in the bloody rude. Take it all out. And he said, I'll blow your bloody cook if you don't be ready and quick. So, with that, listen, my friend, I'll complain you. And he had a big belly in him, and it was like the hulk of the Queen Mary, the bottom of the boat, that the gun, gun boat. But on the tallest hut in your ship, he's hard in your bloody skull. And I have a good, sh- I'll make a target of you. I want to test my shooting, he says. So he had to stand up on the counter, the man, and he put on the tallest hat that was on, to like a creamery tank, to so high up, to sip in the sea so he pulled the gun, and he put seven holes through the hat. But that morning, it was an awful scene. There was smoke coming from houses that were burning, and it was coming out of windows and doors, and the town was in terrible state. And I'll never forget it. I was going over milking the cow, and it was a, it was a sad sight. Every, every, you'd only go about a hundred yards, and you'd see a house smouldering away after the fire. There is a postscript to all this. In December 1921, the Anglo-Irish Treaty was concluded in London, signed between members of the British government and representatives of the Provisional Republican government in Dublin. 
Among the terms were the withdrawal of British military forces from 26 counties of Ireland. The incorrigible Paddy O'Dwyer, still a schoolboy in February 1922, was among those who watched the departure of the local garrison in Ennistymon. It was not without incident. The Christian brother said, I'll take you home earlier than usual to see the tenants going away. So he let us out and there was about about two or three hundred people standing opposite the barrack. And I was sitting on the sill of the window and um, there was a man, a young fellow, he went to school with me, Danny Fitzpatrick. Uh, he was sitting, uh, well, he was standing a few yards away. And I was sitting on the sill of the window and there was another chap that I went to school with, Francie Brennan. And uh, he was standing by the side of me. And um, this man, a tall tan, came out, a man named Swain. And I was sitting in the sill of the window and there was a big crowd in front of me. And uh, he shouted, get away, you bloody Irish. Get away, he says. So when the crowd in, wouldn't move, when he saw that they weren't going to go, he pulled out the revolver and he fired three shots into the crowd. And I saw one woman fall, drop in front of me. Well, out a bit from me, a few yards. And five minutes after, the bomb came across the road. And uh, I was sitting at the sill of the window. And the bomb was behind, it rolled in behind me. And um, it was almost at my heels. And I felt like my claws on fire from the effects of it. And I put on my hand like this to see if what was wrong. And when I look back, like behind me, the next thing there was a, a blast and a flash of light came out of it. And I was put up in the air, slashed again the ground, unconscious. And uh, the crowd were running in all directions, of course. The panic started in, and uh, they were running here and there. So Dr. Garrahy at the time was called and he came and a man named Mick, Michael O'Loughlin, Mick O'Loughlin, he is dead now, and um, he carried me up to Rowan's furniture store at the time. And there was up to about 27 or 28 knocked out. We were all left inside in the furniture store and uh, we were laid out on the floor and all my clothes were taken off. And uh, before that, I could feel the blood running down my sleeves and trousers. And it was kind of low bottom, and I knew there was something wrong. And uh, But after that, then, they took me, that brought me up to the garage, or uh, to the furniture store, and they cut all my clothes off and stripped me there, bandaged me up. Mrs. Rowan went up and she took the sheets of the bed and made bandages out of them. And we dressed us below in the furniture store. So Dr. Keane was in London at the time. He was a surgeon in Instrument Hospital. And he was away and they rang him and they called him, told him what happened and he came that night, late that night, and he performed the operations the following day. So I was beyond for a long, long time in the hospital, in the old workhouse at the time. I got 23 or 24 wounds in the body and uh, there's two of my toes yet and you can drive a pin through them and I have no feeling, they're numb. And the shrapnel is on my body yet. There was 
Except not raising my teeth, knocked out, out of my head, and the gum torn back to my ear. And uh, the shrapnel is in my body, yet it was never taken out. Of course, surgery hadn't come to that, uh, it hadn't uh, come up to the station where it is now. Uh, but if that happened today, of course, the shrapnel would be removed. But I still have it in my body. Ennis-Diamond today is a pretty market town, tucked back from the coast road to Lahinch and Lisdoon Varna. Many of those whose homes were burned in September 1922 received compensation for the destruction. Some houses were rebuilt, others improved. Its shop fronts have the mark of antiquity and are much admired. you Ennis Diamond. We're walking down Parliament Street now. We have some lovely old shop fronts as well and on the left here we have the old courthouse. And um, do you know what that was used for Pat? Well it, it was the courthouse but right now Jackie it's used as it's used by the county council for dustbins and general dumping purposes. It's, this is Parliament Street. And on the left-hand side here, we have a lovely old shop front here, Heinz's. It's an old pub. And last year, the man here was thinking of taking down his shop front to change it for a modern one. And he's changed his mind. And as you can see, he's made a beautiful job of it now, refurbishing it and painting it. And lots of tourists stop here to take photographs of it. And we're very pleased now that he has uh, retained the old shop front. In the 50s and 60s, it went slowly downhill and people didn't have the money to modernise their shop fronts and put up the tile monstrosities that were put up in other towns in Ireland. And because of that, I think, it escaped the plastic and the neon that other towns have got. So now that it's got money in the 80s, I think people are much more aware of shop fronts and they stop and think before they modernise their buildings In fact, so many have gone in the last 18 months that uh, we were getting very concerned last year. But uh, I think with our festival here last year, it helped people to become aware of what they had. And some of them have changed their minds against aluminium and plastic and they're holding on to the old wooden frame. if it had all been modernised the tourists wouldn't come here anyway oh, would they because not. it would be something not worth seeing yes. it would have yeah. lost yeah. its the feeling yeah. as it has but we're trying to keep in touch with people too because you know they feel it is progress to have aluminium or plastic that it will bring more custom but I think slowly they begin to realise that it doesn't follow that people will come just because it's it's like an American town or... It's in time and it's getting a name for its shop fronts. The Germans and the French and the Americans flock here every year to photograph the fronts. 
Charles Health Food Shop now. It used to be owned by Hogan's, which was an old Dennis Diamond family. Um, it was a hardware store and they were also agents for the Cunard line. It is now a health food and thriving vegetable and fruit shop. It's it's, he it's has retained his old shop front and it's a wonderful shop. It is. Look at the lovely arches on the windows and the beautiful columns. This was a very interesting feature of Ennis Diamond, the Grecian columns that are part of the old turn-of-the-century shop fronts. I think, Pat, they're a very interesting feature. Oh, they are. They really are. Well, I came over almost exactly 12 years ago from living in London with a group of people amongst whom there was a music group, two of us were leather workers, two of, three were fine artists and between us we aimed in a year or 18 months to do various projects. Well there was a music group, also two of us were doing leather work, now that was the thing that survived to the extent that there's a shop still over there. Um, Three of the people went back after varying times. Two of those that went back make concertinas. The other one's a fine artist. And the three of us that stayed here, one is now doing silkscreen print Celtic shirts, and the other one's running a health food shop, so three of us are still in the area, and still we, we feel it's our home. I think I can speak for all three of us. Living here has given me an insight into... British history that I didn't really know about before. In proud and loving memory of volunteer Thomas Canole, who was shot and burned by British forces during the sack of Ennis Diamond on the night of the 22nd of September 1920, may he rest in peace, erected by Joseph Canole. Well, this is Burke's pub in Church Street. And it's a perfect example of 1920 architecture, the first floor bay window, and it hasn't changed at all since the 1920s. It has been bought recently, and we hope the new owner will retain its perfect shop front in keeping with the other shop fronts of, of the town. This was a popular public house with a piano and sing songs, and it was rebuilt in the 1930s with compensation money from the English government.